So picture this with me. You're at a good old southern steakhouse or southern smokehouse. The kind that assumes you're going to get messy while eating their world-renowned baby back ribs. So picture this. Go there right now in your mind. You haven't eaten all day in anticipation because you want to get really hungry so you can really enjoy this. This is kind of expensive. And while working up the hunger, walking around the city, and it's 100 degrees outside, you can't wait to eat. You park near the restaurant, and while your roaring stomach is controlling the speed of your approach, you start, you start walking a little faster because you want to eat. As you get closer, the intoxicating smell of racks upon racks upon racks of beautifully cured and grilled and smoked ribs wafts up, aged and spiced to perfection. Ice-cold draft beers on tap for those of you who like beer. If not, just a good old soda or lemonade. Gallons upon gallons, and you're just, you're just salivating. You can't wait to eat. You sit down after the waiter, waiter or waitress brings you to a table and asks you, well, would you like a taste? Maybe a little, little appetizer, just a little bite, just to, just to taste it a little bit. They ask you, the way they ask you is like, I, I know you're going to want this, so let me just hand it to you. They bring over a fork with a piece, torn off the ribs with a little glass of water, and they're just anticipating your responses, this heavenly glory of slow-cooked pork. To describe the bite wouldn't even give it justice. You can't imagine this much goodness in such a small package. You're like, I got a full rack of this? But then you get right up, you tell the server, thank you. You leave, walk back to your car, and go home leaving everyone speechless. That's, that's, that'd be crazy, right? They just have the appetizer, but not actually enjoy the, the main meal. Because the appetizer is a, is a foretaste of the main meal. They're just getting you ready, getting you excited. It's just like Lazarus' resurrection is a foretaste of Jesus' resurrection. It's a, don't stop at Lazarus, go to Jesus. Because John 11 isn't actually about Lazarus. If you haven't noticed, Lazarus says nothing. He's just kind of a prop. He's just using this story. You see, John 10 ends with Jesus' final exit from Jerusalem, although he kind of insinuates him to go to Judah. Just like Lazarus' resurrection, or just after the unbelief of the Pharisees and the belief of the Gentiles sent by John. So you saw Those two different responses. The Jews did not believe, and the Gentiles did. See, Jesus in John 11 is is giving you a foreshadow of what his passion is going to look like, what his death on the cross is going to look like, what his resurrection is going to look like, and what it looks like for you. We're going to see this in three points. The first is death, verses 1 through 16. Jesus waits for Lazarus to die. Jesus says, I'm not going to heal him. I want him to die so that I can show you my glory. 
And the second is resurrection, verses 17 to 44. And this is really juxtaposed to chapter 10, because all you see in chapter 10 is basically unbelief. Nobody trusts. Are you the Christ? I don't believe you. I'm going to send guards against you. Versus Mary and Martha believe on the spot. Yes, you are the Christ. You are the one who comes into the world. And lastly is decision, verses 45 to 57. And this is the thing. It's not just Jesus resurrects or Lazarus. You will resurrect. Everyone resurrects. It's either it's a resurrection in belief to life or resurrection in unbelief to death. So there are technically two resurrections. We'll see these two here. And I pray this becomes clearer, or this comes clear throughout. In Jesus' resurrection, your resurrection is guaranteed. And you get a taste of it with Lazarus. So our first point, death, will begin with verse 1. So Jesus is back home. Back in his, you can call it his ministry home. He's born in Bethlehem, but his ministry home is based in Bethany. It's kind of like people he knows best, friends that he's grown up with. He's more than likely grown up with Mary and Martha. He's known Lazarus his whole life, or at least Lazarus his whole life. He's probably close to Lazarus. He, he knows them. They're, they're kind of a family friend for him. They're, they're close. And remember, this comes right after belief among the people across the Jordan, which are Gentiles. And you can, you can kind of say, with verse 1, John's continuing this. One of those who believe is a sick man, Lazarus. And it's, it's strikingly similar to what you get in John 5. John 5, in verse 5, it says, A certain man was there who had been invalid. It's effectively the same word as sick. For 38 years. And the first two women, not even Jesus' mom is named, the first two women in the gospel given their names, Mary and Martha. They're tending to their sick brother, anointing with oil, which is exactly what you're supposed to do according to Mosaic law. So Pharisees who know the Mosaic law super well, better than you and I will ever know it, violate it. These two women... Nail it. It's exactly what you're supposed to do for sick men or for sick people. And you also get this in James 5, anointing the sick. So they're doing it. You can say they're, they're following the law, in a sense. They let Jesus know that Lazarus is sick, and because they tell him, this is a, this is a serious sickness. They don't just tell anybody, oh, I, I got the cold. No, this, is a, this is a really bad sickness. But Jesus' response it, it's, it, strike, it strikes you as odd at first. This illness does not lead to death. And you can kind of hear them saying, well, like, well, that's why we're telling you he's sick. Because it's going to lead to death. He says, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And put yourself in Mary and Martha's shoes. You're like, what about Lazarus? Are you going to heal him? That's what you did for everybody else before him. What about Lazarus? Because neither Mary nor Martha, and this is the fascinating thing about most of these healing stories, they don't ask him to heal first. They just said, he's sick. And the one who's sick doesn't say anything. Doesn't say a word in all of chapter 11. Lazarus doesn't open his mouth. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, 
Let's wait for him to die. Then I'll go to work. Then I'll show my glory. Well, verse 5 can immediately strike you as just kind of general love from Jesus for humanity. Like, oh, I expect the Creator to love all things. I think it's proper to to see this as as really human love. Jesus, as the man, who's God-man, but as a man, really loves Lazarus, really loves Mary, really loves Martha. He's he's a really true human being, and he has really true human emotions. Like, I I love them. Yes, as the Creator, but also as as a human. I love them. He stays in Bethany for two days, but what doesn't he do? Doesn't heal. He just kind of sits there. You can imagine Mary Martha's like, you're a healer. Why aren't you healing? He's sick. He doesn't heal Lazarus as he does the three previous people he healed, because he heals them on the spot. Lazarus is the only one he waits for. And then he leaves. Rightfully so, after he tells his disciples to go to Judah, well, they were likely anticipating another healing miracle. But Jesus doesn't perform it. But they go to Judah, and again, if you know the previous stories, although it's a slightly different area, Judeans don't like Jesus. They want to put Jesus to death. And he says, let's go to Judah. And his disciples are like, well, that's where they wanted to stone you. Why would you go back there? They're terrified. Because they've seen the Jews' interactions with the Lord of glory enfleshed. In verses 9 and 10, they can be perplexing at first. But effectively, Jesus is telling them, this is kind of my like, summary of this, it's not my hour yet. They can't do anything to me until I allow it. You have the light with you. Why would you fear? You've seen what I've done. You see my glory. Why do you fear this? He's saying, if, when I leave, like, that's a different story. But you've got me with you right now. Do not trust me. That's the subtext here. For Jesus will not be arrested, he's telling them, until I say it so. Until I tell them, arrest me. Until I allow them to arrest me. And then gently, Jesus informs the disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Which is, you can call it a Semitic Hebrew idiom for he's died. For Jesus is about to wake him up. But then notice this little aside. It's, it's probably John like inserting a little comment in verses 12 to 13. He doesn't change his mind between verses 11 and 13. As if he spoke about Lazarus, but he kind of forgot. He's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, telling, I'm talking about myself. I'm sorry to confuse you. He's telling you what I'm about to form, perform for Lazarus is meant to point to me meant ultimately to point, point to what I'm about to do. So he said, don't just stop at Lazarus. Look towards what I'm about to do. It's, it's an appetizer to the main meal. You got a little taste. This would be a little taste, but don't just stop at the little taste. Go for the main course. Go for the whole meal. And then in verses 14 and 15, he lets them know that Lazarus has died. He knows all things, and he lets them know. 
but he's glad. Death has reigned victorious over Lazarus, and Jesus rejoices. Again, this should, this should kind of strike you a little bit. He whom Jesus could have healed, they're probably thinking, is now lifeless, and Jesus is glad about this. Why is he excited about it? Why is he glorifying in this? He says, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Not reveling in his death, like this death is going to be used, and he's going to be raised up again. But let us go to him. And when he says, so that you may believe, you can kind of wonder, like, well, the disciples are wondering, well, what do we believe? And Jesus is saying, well, I'm, I'm Lord over death. I control death. I can kill death. Good old Thomas assumes that death is the point. It's like, let's go die with him. That's, that, must, that must be what he's talking about. Let's, go, let's all go die together. That's, that's, what, that's what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says, no, it's not death, it's resurrection that I'm about to show you. And so very different than the confession Thomas is Mary and Martha, whose hope is not in death, but whose hope is in resurrection. And they teach us the same thing. Every single one of you here, every single one of you will die. Every single one of you will resurrect. Will your life resurrect into death, or will your death resurrect into life? And that brings us to our next point, resurrection. And, and two things that I want to start off with, that I want, I want you to keep in the back of your minds. One is Lazarus is really dead. Like really, actually, totally dead. Not just sleeping or like kind of looks dead. Really, really dead. Not sort of dead or sleeping really heavy. Like your husband or wife pokes at you, is like, are you still alive? Or you poke at your dog, is like, I hope he's still alive. Really dead, like dead, dead. And John, like, kind of places more things on top of this. Like, he's really, really, really dead. And two, this occurs on the sixth day of Jesus' return back to Bethany. So he stays there for two days, and on the fourth day of Lazarus' death, that's when he goes back to heal. Many come to the side of both Mary and Martha from miles across, probably both professional mourners, which is a Jewish ritual, and just people who probably knew them, to aid in the mourning of their beloved brother, Lazarus. So, where it gets about. He's dead. It's not a gimmick or sideshow. Neither Mary or Martha, not trying to pull a fast on everybody and says, just kidding, he's not actually dead, he's just sleeping. Lazarus is really dead. I know I'm saying death a lot, but it's just, it's over and over in this passage. They're really pinning it down. So in verses 20 to 22, Martha comes only to see, or out to see Jesus, knowing that he holds the power to heal. She is certain of it. You can heal. It's, it's like the, the royal official of John 4. He was certain you can heal. If you just speak, my son will be alive. 
And so she's pretty sure. I've got the divine healer in front of me. He's got power. God listens to him. Maybe he can help my, my, my brother. Or maybe he could have helped my brother. And things get a little clearer in verses 23 to 24 when Jesus responds not with, I wish I could have healed him. I'm sorry I'm too late. But it says, your brother will rise again. And notice what she says. Because it's directly opposite of what the Pharisees say in John 10. She doesn't mock him. She's not incredulous, like, you're out of your mind, you're blaspheming. She says, I know my brother will rise on the last day. She believes in resurrection. She's sure of it. She knows her Old Testament really well. This is Daniel 12.2, and she's referring to Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So she looks back at the Daniel 12 promise and says, that's true of my brother. I know it's going to happen. And she's not wrong. She sees in the future. She's not wrong. It's one of the most, you can call it, theologically astute answers in the entire gospel. Better than the Pharisees. Better than the scribes. Better than the lawyers. Better than the high priest. She believes it. And she sees a healer in front of her. She's not terribly sure of everything, but she's got a little bit right. But, but how does Jesus correct her? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Not, there will be a resurrection and life in the future. It's, I am the resurrection and the life. The thing you're looking for the future is right in front of you. I, I bring that. I am that resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's telling Martha and he's telling you, I am the power of resurrection life. I defeated death. I killed death. Your brothers and yours and your resurrection is me. I bring that. You don't have to wait. I bring that resurrection. Yes, your physical resurrection, that will occur in the second coming. But your spiritual resurrection, that happens the moment you believe. And your spiritual guarantees your physical. They're not two separate acts where like you have to do one thing and then wait a long time and really hope. If you believe in me, you will be resurrected. Because you've ever been given that first fruits, that sign of resurrection with me. He's telling her, you will dwell with me the second you believe in heaven. He tells Martha and you from the moment of your confession onward. It's not just a future thing, though it's consummated in the future. It's fulfilled in the future. It starts now. Resurrection starts this very day. And Paul takes this at length in Colossians 3, 1 through 16. He takes the same doctrine. But there's a big problem. Lazarus is still dead. <coughs> so what does Jesus mean by telling Martha, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die? Because there's a clearly dead person in the tomb. What do you mean, Jesus? 
that he'll never die. Because he's, he's there. He's dead. And again, Martha, though she nails it, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It is the clearest confession in the entire gospel of belief in the Son. And it comes from Mary. You could say, this is, this is how you know the Bible is not making stuff up. Because no one at this time, to be honest, trusted a woman. No confession, no evidence from one really made it into court. So for the Bible to say, the first one to actually really believe this stuff, to nail it's a woman, the Bible is like, I'm not really worried about what the culture says. I'm not really worried about what you guys think. It's, it's a way of us to know that this is, this is true. What the Pharisees had such a difficult time answering in the very previous chapter, just a few verses ahead of this, are you the Christ? They ask him. And when he tells them, what do they want to do? They want to stone him. And Mary says, yes, you are the Christ. And then Martha then sprints to Mary. like, I just found him. I found the Messiah. I found the Christ. Having confessed the Christ of God, she then tells her, come, come and see him. Come and see the one who has paid for us. All the promises of the Old Testament stood right in front of her, stood fulfilled right in front of her. It's like, I found him. He's finally come. And the many who had come to console both sisters at Lazarus' death then followed the sisters. Where is this one? Where is this one we were looking forward to? And notice how similar verses 31 to 33 are to Martha's interaction with Jesus. Jesus enters the womb in verse 34 and then weeps in verse 35. It's the creator of the universe, like we've already said, who feels real emotions. He weeps deeply human tears. He feels deep human emotion, not fake. He's real. He's a real human, and he feels this. And he enters the tomb weeping because the fall of Adam in the garden now has death reigning over all people. And so he weeps for this as well. It's like death won. Death, death has won in this world. Death is reigning over this world. This has conquered this world. Which is why Jesus came. And Lazarus was his friend. He knew him. He loved him. He lived with him. He probably laughed with him. And many mock because of what Jesus had done for the blind man. It's, well, you healed a blind man. Why couldn't you have healed Lazarus? Why couldn't you stop this? Surely if you healed some person's blindness and gave him sight, you could make a guy live. And so they mock him. And then foreshadowing begins to dominate from verses 38 to 44. And it's, this imagery is shared between Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection. So when Jesus comes to a cave with a stone over it, it's meant to, meant to foreshadow the other stone that's on top of Jesus' cave. And then two women, who are the first two witnesses at the end of John, at the end of Luke, at the end of Mark, at the end of Matthew... You have two women walk into the cave with Lazarus. 
and the stench. Verse 39. Lazarus has been dead four days, and so they're like, this is gonna this is gonna stink really bad. He's been dead for a long time, his body's released all of its toxins, has released all everything that's inside of it. It's the same thing they basically fear when they walk to Jesus' tomb. This is going to smell really bad. We have to bring these anointing oils, try to cover over the smell. And upon entering the tomb, Jesus looks up into the heavens, not for his sake, though, but he does it so that other people might hear him. I want them to know what I'm about to say. Without touching Lazarus, he then calls forth, Lazarus, come out. In verse 43. And you have to know the Old Testament, and especially Leviticus, to know this is, a, this is kind of a wrong scene. Because to walk into a dead person's tomb, does anybody know what happens? You defile yourself. And everyone who's with you. They're, they're walking into defilements. So you assume... They're all going to defile themselves. They're going to have to get purified. They're going to have to go back to the temple and purify themselves. But then the holiness of Christ comes in and isn't impurified by this, but purifies this. His purity is stronger than its impurity. His life is stronger than its death. So much so that by the word of the word, he defeats death. And life comes back into the nostrils of Lazarus. Like the resurrection of Jesus, when the clothes of his death are laid neatly in the tomb, so they take off the clothes of death of Lazarus. When now he has life. Resurrection. But it's a little different. Because this really isn't resurrection. This resurrection, you could say, was returning to life. Not a resurrection of new life. Because Lazarus doesn't receive his, his true new creation body. He's back in his body. It's like the appetizer. It's meant to make you long for new creation life. When he's resurrected, he's like, I want new creation life. I don't want this death and sick body. For Jesus himself would be crucified for you, die for you, and rise a new life to give you not back your body, but your new creation body. The glory of Yahweh was displayed in this resurrection, the power to bring life, compelling you to long for new life. So, how will you respond? Lastly, this brings us to point three, decision. The many who came along with Mary and Martha saw, and they believed. Which again is a foreshadowing to the 500 who come after the resurrection who believe. Was read in verse 46, the Pharisees who watch this, who see everything that Jesus just did, they don't believe. And this is a breaking point. They're like, oh, we got, we got to do something about this guy now. There's too much power in Jesus for him to, for us to leave, him, leave him alone, do his thing. Like healing a blind man, that's fine. 
Raising a sick man's kid or sick kid from a man, that's fine. But resurrection of life, that's, that's something different. Caiaphas, the high priest this time, warns in verse 49 and 50, you know nothing at all, and he's telling his Pharisee friends, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And as so often is the case, he speaks way better than he knows. Prophesy exactly what Jesus is about to do. Because he does die for you. He does take your sins upon himself against the same law of God which Jesus held up perfectly. That he might rise as he foreshadows in Lazarus to give you his record of obedience. So the day Jesus gives life back to Lazarus, when life reigns over death, the Pharisees want to put him to death. Very opposite of what Jesus had just done. He comes to give life. What are the Pharisees coming to do? To bring death. The time of the Passover is coming when a lamb is sacrificed on behalf of the people that the Lord might be satisfied by the innocent blood. And that's, this, is the, this is the context that they're in. They're, they're during the Passover when the lamb is given for the people. When all of Israel should have been celebrating and remembering the Passover, their entrance not into death, but when death enters them into life. They remember this. A perfect blameless lamb had to die so they could pass through into life. That's their context. And what do the leaders want to do? They want to kill. They want to put to death. During the Passover, they want to arrest Jesus. Little do they know that they are about to sacrifice the blameless Lamb of God who takes away your and my sin. You see, Lazarus' life, death, and resurrection back to life. It actually doesn't do him any good. Not Lazarus. It's meant to point him and everybody else around him, like Jesus says, to his glory. It merely foreshadows Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, not back to life, but to point forward to new life. Because you don't need prolonged life. You don't need more life. You need new life. That's what Jesus says. In Jesus' resurrection, you who trust in him have been given new life through his resurrection. And you've been resurrected in him. It's not just Jesus on his own is waiting for you. He brings you with him. He says, you're going to resurrect with me. Your judgment has passed. This is Passover. I'm the lamb. You go through me to get to God. You who trust in him, you're rendered guiltless and perfect in Jesus. Not just your sins are forgiven, but you're given perfection. You don't just receive your earthly body like Lazarus got back. You got your perfected body. 
And while you're in your earthly now, your perfected is promised, saying you will get this when you believe in Christ. You'll be raised incorruptible. And this happens spiritually the moment you believe, and that guarantees your physical resurrection. Death's grip is loosened, and death is defeated in Christ's resurrection. I'll end with this question. Do you trust in Christ? If so, the good news is you look forward to your future bodily resurrection, but right this very second, you participate in Christ's first resurrection. And you see that in Lazarus. Let's pray. Lord, you have promised us, not just promised us, you've given us new resurrection life. Not just back life, the life we have, but you've given us the resurrection of your son. We participate in his life, and we participate in it now. May we not just look for return to life or just healing of this life, but new life. And we get this in the resurrection of your son. Lord, we thank you that you've done this for us. When we deserve nothing, you've given us new life, a new life in your son. We thank you, we praise you, all this in your son's name. Amen.